tonight as we wrap up today this series on um, prayer as rebellion against the status quo, I want us to look together in the book of Acts at Acts chapter 12. Now this story we're about to explore to me is one of the most delightful, and I really choose that word specifically, one of the most delightful stories in all of the book of Acts. It's an example of some of God's rebels rebelling against their particular status quo. Now, if you need a breakthrough in your life, this message is for you. If you're feeling stuck, perhaps, in your progress, I think God has some lessons from this story in his word that are gonna help you get the kind of progress and kind of momentum you need Again, I believe God has something for you specifically in this. I invite you to pull up a chair, to listen closely to what God has to say to you through his word today. So let's begin by looking at the status quo. What is the actual reality that this group of early believers are about to rebel against? Well, I'm gonna start reading in Acts 12, starting in verse one. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, this is one of the 12 original apostles, James, one of the sons of thunder, okay, and Herod has had him Uh, executed, all right? When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in other words, the Passover time. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, and then the first few words of verse five, so Peter was kept in prison. So that's the unjust status quo they're rebelling against. It must have been terrifying. Herod, this maniacal, power-hungry king, has already had one of their leaders put to death, and now he seems to be determined to put another one to death. So he has Peter thrown in prison. Herod is just one of those politicians that's interested in convenience. Whatever the popular breeze is, what's gonna get him an advantage with his constituency? That's the kind of political, I know that's hard for you to imagine, you know, a politician that would be like that, but. Believe me, it happened then, and and I guess it happens today. He was rather mercenary, and in this time, Christians are just not that popular. So here's Herod. He goes after another one of their leaders, and he assigns four quaternions of soldiers. That's four squads of four soldiers each. Peter's going to be chained to two of them at all times, 24-7, okay, And the other two that are in the squad of four are standing 
guard. And it's 24-7. Every six hours, they change shifts and a new force soldiers comes on board. Now, question, why is Peter in prison in the first place? Has he murdered someone? Has he embezzled money? Or blew up a building through terrorist activity? No, not at all. Nothing like that. Peter's in prison for one reason. He dares to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's why he is incarcerated. That is his crime. So I want to pick this story up and read a bit further so you get a sense of what happened here, picking it up back at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, and oh, I'm tempted to camp out on these next few words, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Folks, we could spend hours talking about all of the inflection points, all of the Hinge points in history where the status quo was a stinking mess except for the church who was earnestly praying to God and God used his people as agents of transformation to change things. But I don't have time to go there, all right? But I just love that phrase. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So that's the mess they were in. The political leaders are against them. Herod has already killed one apostle. He seems to be hell-bent on killing another. That's the status quo. But verse 5 again is amazing. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This is the people of God, the rebels, just doing what rebels do. They look at the status quo and they're not okay with it. They're not willing just to resign themselves and say, oh well, that is just the way things are. No, not these people. 
They prayed rebellious prayers. Now, if you're a part of the revolution, if you want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, if you want to be a part of what God is up to and get in on what God is doing in this world, then I invite you to look now very, very precisely at how they prayed. And I know that many of you are interested in this, so you, you will want to see here what kind of characterized their rebellious prayers. I want to point out five things about them. First, they were urgent. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly how long they had been praying, but it does tell us in verse 4 that Herod intended, after the Passover, to bring Peter to this public trial. Now, everyone knew what that meant. This wasn't about justice. This wasn't about what was true. This was about what would be politically expedient and make Herod more popular with his constituency. And everyone understood there was, there was going to be a guilty verdict and almost certainly a swift execution. So note the urgency. Verse 6 is very clear. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial. Because boy, boy, you talk about timing. I mean, if, if ever prayers were urgent, their prayers were urgent. I, I'm just curious what might cause you and me to pray urgent prayers today. You know, we live in uncertain. We live in evil times. We live in times where it seems that so much is in the balance. I think it ought to stoke up the urgency of our prayers. But second, they were united and harmonious in their goal in prayer. Here's what we get a sense of from Scripture, that there needs to be believers kind of coming together in unity and agreeing on things. And when we read the book of Acts today, I think most of us are like, wow, our eyes are bugging out. And we see God's power just explode through those early believers. And we see thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And we go, wow, I long for that kind of power today. And, and that's understandable. But one of the keys to their power was their unity in prayer. They were together. They were in one accord. They were harmonious in their focus and their goal. Show me the unity of the book of Acts, and then we can talk about the power of the book of Acts. Now, verse 12 in our text tells us that they had gone to the home of a woman named Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is the mother of John Mark. And apparently she had a house that could accommodate a good number of people. Verse 12b says, there were many people gathered and were praying. Now remember, no church buildings in these days. No buildings that were exclusively devoted for the worship of Christians. They, they worshiped in catacombs. They, they worshiped down by the river. They, they, in Acts 2, they met together in the temple courts. But their primary church facilities were homes. Some of you wonder, well, why do we have all these small groups? Why do we encourage you to get together with other like-minded believers in someone's home or in a small group? It's because that's just the dynamic model of the early church. That's the precedent we see. 
and it allows you to do life together. It allows you to strive together in your journey with God. So they were unified. Third, they were specific. Now, granted, there is no verse here that tells us, and they used Peter's name and called him by name, but obviously they did. They all knew who they were praying for, and no doubt they cried out and said, Lord, would you please deliver our brother, our leader, Simon Peter, from this awful situation. Now, a couple weeks ago, I challenged you to make it a practice to do what George Mueller and so many other great women and men of God have done You remember his list of 76 people? And many of you have commented on that. And I I had one brother write me a whole letter about that and say, I'm gonna start my own George Mueller kind of list with people that I'm gonna be praying for. And I think that's encouraging. And I told you that perhaps the verse I'd prayed more than any other is Acts 26, 18. And I would urge you to make that a regular practice. But you know... The the record is astounding when people are prayed for by name. I was reading this book earlier this week. I've been working through it slowly. It's a memoir, it says, of the life and ministry of Mr. William Bramwell. It was first published in 1830, okay? Bill Bramwell was one of the most effective early Methodist preachers in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He ministered during a time of awakening and revival. He ministered in that area we would call today the the UK, the United Kingdom. But when I read about his ministry and his life, I feel like a spiritual wimp. I mean, this guy had such discipline, such vigor. It, it, It inspires me. Let me read you just one little tiny example of it. And this is on page 57 of of this book. And this is indicative of what you see throughout his life. It tells about one city he was ministering in. And he would go to bed at this particular city, although he usually went to bed earlier than this. He was so engulfed in the work, he went to bed after midnight just about every night. But here's what it says, and I quote, He always rose the next morning at five, yikes, and prayed for particular persons by name. You say, well, pastor, what happened? Well, as you read the story, here's what happened. Those specific people that Bill Bramwell prayed for, scores and scores and scores of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. Are you praying for anybody by name? It's, it's exciting. I agree. It's exciting. I, I was listening to an Elisa Childers podcast just this week, and I heard another test. It's like everywhere I turn, I'm hearing stories about how people who got prayed for by name, God intervened. Marsha Montenegro was being interviewed. Marsha used to be a leader uh, in, in the sort of new age movement and community. Uh, She was far, far from God by her own testimony. She was an astrologer. She earned money doing that, trying to tell people about their future and so on. 
But she needed another day job in order to make some additional money. And at the other day job, there was a young man who just kind of befriended her. And he would not, he was a Christian. He would not cram the gospel down her throat. He'd just ask her questions just to try to get her thinking, talking. And Marcia said, I was the most unlikely convert you have ever seen in your life. But she said, when I finally came to faith in Christ, this young man rejoiced with me. And she said, I don't know how in the world this happened to me of all people. And with a wry smile, he said, maybe someone was praying for you. And she found out that a year and a half before, the first impulses she had to get away from her astrological work and begin to pursue the God of the Bible, the first impulses started when this young man's small group had started praying by name for Marcia Montenegro. Folks, the testimonies are just overwhelming. So these early Christians prayed for Peter by name. Number four, they were earnest. Now, sometimes I think our prayers get a little what we'd say in Leoma, Tennessee, highfalutin. We say, oh Lord, magnificent, omnipotent creator of the universe, thou existential ground of our being and the source of all felicities in this life. What in the heck does that mean? <laughs> when you pray, God's looking for raw authenticity. God's not against big words as long as they're authentic, as long as they express the belief and the feeling in your gut. Verse five of our text says the church was earnestly. They were just going through the motions of prayer. They were earnest. I wonder if our prayers are earnest. As far as I can tell, one of the most effective prayers in the Bible was when Simon Peter was drowning, and he was earnest. He said, Lord, save me. And the Lord intervened. Now, my guess is the most common prayer prayed today is, Lord, if you'll get me out of this mess, I'll never do it again, right? And maybe you need to pray that prayer. But wherever you are in your life journey, I urge you to pray earnestly to God. And this final one I'll mention may seem a little silly to you, but I'm gonna say it anyway. They actually prayed to God. Verse five's explicit. The church earnestly prayed to God. You say, Pastor, why would you even need to say that? Because I'm convinced that many of our prayers are more about the people listening to us than they are about God. Do you, do you have this problem? I do. If I know anybody is listening, whether it's one person or hundreds of people, I'm very conscious about how I'm praying. And maybe when you pray, you wonder, is my theology right? Are people judging my words here? Oh, I'm just not very eloquent. And, and if we're not careful, we can be guilty of what Jesus warned us against. Don't pray to be seen by people. Our prayers are not really to and for God. They're more about other people. 
So let's be sure that we're praying to the one who can actually do something. Let's be sure that when we pray, we're praying to the one who has invited us to come and call on him, and he will tell us great and unsearchable things we do not know. Make sure you're praying to the one who actually has the power to make a difference. You know, as I was... uh, As I was preparing this this week, my mind went to one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. Let me tell you what it is. I urge you to read it sometime, the whole thing. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and it's the story of Jehoshaphat. Don't you love that name? He was the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. And you talk about a mess. His status quo was dire, It was really difficult, and it was dreadful. Here's what was happening. The kingdom of Judah had all, not just one nation, but a collaboration of nations coming against them. And there were armies of thousands out there that looked like they were bearing down, they were coming to destroy them and take them over. You say, well, why didn't the army of Judah respond? Because... They had no legitimate response. The army was at a weakened and at a very low ebb at this point. And so the situation, there just seemed to be no way out. But this godly leader, Jehoshaphat, when the status quo, when the mess he's in is overwhelming, here's what he did. He turned his eyes to heaven. You can read the prayer for yourself, 2 Chronicles 20. I love it. He says, oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Be sure that when you pray, even though you may not know what to do, your eyes are upon the one who can make a difference. That's the prayer of a rebel. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Be sure you're taking your concerns directly from God. That's what these believers did, and God came through dramatically. Now, as we go down home stretch here, I just want to briefly point out what I'll call final observations as we wrap up not only this sermon, but as we wrap up this whole series on rebellion against the status quo. Let let me, I just reflected over this passage this week, and I want to just give you three kind of observations that that I'd love to, to share with you. Kind of insights, lessons we need to take away. Number one, although God answered dramatically some awful things still happen. Now, I share this point kind of as a reality check, and here's why. Because I get a little concerned at times that as we read the Bible, some of us believers, we think that whenever God is at work, everything's just gonna kind of have butterflies and little cute puppies running around it, flying around it. 
that, that when God is really at work in life, you know what? Everything's going to have a beautiful, nice bow just kind of tied right on the top of it. And everything's going to work out happily ever after for everyone involved. Folks, that is just not the case. I'm reading here now from verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. You may think this is crazy, but I've always been bummed for these soldiers here, these guards. He said, no, Pastor Rex, these are wicked Roman guards. They had it coming to them, brother. How do you know that? These guys weren't shirking their duty. They were overpowered by a supernatural being. And we don't know what kind of people there were. I mean, some of these guys may have been faithful husbands, loving fathers, maybe one or two of them was about ready to retire after a long, illustrious career, and were just looking forward to a, a wonderful season of retirement. And now, ha, because God did a miracle and answered rebellious prayers, they get executed. What's with that? I hope you're listening closely. You see, human Sin and evil have created a world where win-win scenarios just don't always happen, folks. We gotta be, there aren't nice bows and puppy dogs scampering around everything and just all happy, happy, happy all the time. There are enemies of God who are determined to see God and his kingdom fail. And listen, there are bystanders who get caught in the crossfire of kingdoms colliding. Do you understand there are kingdoms colliding in this world? There is a kingdom of evil and there's God's kingdom and the kingdom of evil has all kinds of iterations and faces and disguises and names and movements and trends. But it's really the same thing, just clothed in different clothes. People get caught in the crossfire. Here, you better decide whose side you're on. It's not a safe place. It's a war zone. I'm not, that's not dramatic language. It's a war zone. Kingdoms are colliding and people get caught in the crossfire. Whose side are you on? I would simply leave you with the challenge that Joshua left to the people of his day. He said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, hey, we've, we've made a choice. Have you made that choice? I hope that's the choice you make. That you're gonna serve the true and the living God, it is a hostile environment in which we live. Be on the right side. Amen. Second, observation, just final observations. 
Okay, second one, this, this gets a little happier now, okay. Doesn't have puppy dogs yet, but it, it gets a little happier. God does some pretty cool things, even when his people aren't great models of faith. That's one of the things that I really like. That's why I called it a delightful story. I love this story. I heard about a chairman of a church board, you know, who was praying before the church board meeting, and he prayed, oh, omnipotent God, you who are all powerful, all things are possible for you. You created the universe and set the stars in place, and you've told us we can do all things through you. Please bless our meeting tonight, amen. And then he turned to his fellow board members and said, guys, we face an impossible situation. There's no way this church can get out of this. <laughs> what? Doesn't that, how does that fit with your prayer? But that reminds me of these people who were praying for Peter's release. See, see here's the deal, I, I think I think we have blinders when we look back on these early believers. I think when we read the book of Acts, because of the cool things that are going, I think we all assume every one of them was a spiritual giant. They were always filled with faith. They lived in high victory every day. They never doubted God. But that's not what the record shows. If you read it carefully, sometimes the record shows that their faith was more like a grain of mustard seed. And I think that's what this group who's praying for Peter were, were more like. When Peter finally realizes this is real and it's not a vision, verse 12 says, when this had dawned on him, oh gee, this is real. Oh my gosh, I thought it was dreaming. I thought it was just a vision. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. <laughs> I love this. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, watch closely, verse 15 at these paragons of faith. And they responded to Rhoda. Of course he's at the door, Rhoda, because we've been praying for him. God always answers just like we want. Wait a minute, I read, I'm sorry. It must have been those mushrooms I ate yesterday. I, I'm sorry, my mind's a little fuzzy here. Let me try again. When they realized Peter was at the door, they said, girlfriend, don't you know we've learned to put a gun to God's head and get a miracle every time? Some of you would expect that. Here's what these paragons of faith said to Rhoda. Girlfriend, you are out of your mind. Boy, that encourages me. Wow, that encourages me so much because sometimes I feel like my faith is like a grain of mustard seed. They said, Rhoda, sister, you're out of your mind. Don't you? We're praying for Peter. He can't be at the door. We're praying for his release. That's how little their faith was. When she kept insisting on it that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. <laughs> 
But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Oh, I just love the Bible. I love the Bible. It keeps it so real. And I find it so refreshing that even people with faith like a grain of mustard seed, God still answered their prayer. That gives tremendous hope to me. One final observation as we close. No matter how bleak the status quo, no matter how bleak it is, nothing can stop Jesus from building his church. Nothing. Here's what I wanna leave you with. Now, I wonder if the local newspaper, the Jerusalem Gazette, there was no such paper, but just, just go with me here, man. I wonder if it recorded anything about all this. Huh? Palestinian press, I wonder. I'm sure it had something with Herod on the front page, his latest building project. I'm sure it had something from back in Rome about the latest water aqueduct they built. I'm sure there was something about all the local grift and scandals on the local level. I'm sure that was all duly noted. But I just wonder, I just gotta wonder, was there anything, even a word, about this obscure group of rebels gathered over at Mary's house that no one gave a rip about? I wonder if it even said a word about them. That's what really mattered. That's what really was going on. I'm sure nobody had much of an interest in an obscure prayer meeting. But here's what they did not know. That the prayers of God's rebels are powerful and effective. What they didn't know is that nothing can stop God's church. We read a few verses later what happened to Herod. I'm looking now at verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But here's the line I want to leave you with. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Can I? Woo! Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you what's going to happen in the capital district when God's people pray rebellious prayers? The word of God is gonna continue to increase and spread. Nothing can stop it. Jesus is going to keep on mending marriages. Jesus is gonna keep on saving people who are right now far from him. He's gonna keep opening eyes and turning people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You know what else he's gonna do? He's gonna bring some freedom to the captives. He's gonna bring justice to the oppressed. Jesus is gonna keep on building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what happens when rebels pray rebellious prayers. So here's my final word to you. What's God looking for out of this? He's looking for you. 
He's looking for you to show up in the rebellion. God's looking for men and women and young people to just keep doing what Peter kept doing at that door that day. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking until the mess we're in becomes a masterpiece of God's sovereign grace. Praise be to his name. Father, we thank you. We celebrate your goodness. We rejoice in what you're doing. Thank you that we can be a part of your kingdom work that nothing can stop. Nobody cares about all of Herod's exploits and all of his pomp and circumstance. But what that little group of rebels was praying about, your kingdom to come on earth, for your servant to be released, for your will to be done, that's what mattered. That's what was making front news and headline news in heaven. Thank you that we can be a part of what is really, really important. We are so honored, so thrilled standing on tiptoes of anticipation what you're gonna do as we keep rebelling against the status quo. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. amen.